and I'm excited to jump into our study of our passage this morning. Um, and it just occurred to me, just a little full disclosure here, I realized this morning that how I was going to start today's message has, is completely the wrong way to start it. So I'm completely changing my introduction, so Josh has no idea what I'm saying. I actually don't know too much what I'm saying, I, I kind of do. The point is, um, as I was driving here, I just realized that sometimes there are things that are so important that, that they can be right in front of us and we don't see it. Isn't that true? Wives say that all the time about us husbands, probably. And this was the kind of thing when I was driving here today, I thought, oh my gosh, today, this Sunday, is probably one of the most significant Sundays that we could observe in a year. Uh, anyone have idea what Sunday this is, generally speaking? Why is it significant? Reformation Sunday, right? Now, what's very interesting about this particular year, uh, it's actually even more interesting next year, but this is the 499th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 499 years ago this weekend, actually tomorrow, the Protestant Reformation changed the globe. If it wasn't for that singular event, we'd all be Catholics right now, basically speaking. Now, Back in 1517, there was a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Some of you may have heard of him, not Martin Luther King Jr., the one he was named after, Martin Luther. He was a monk, and he was struggling with, with pleasing God so much that he was always in the confessional. Here was a monk that was always in the confessional till his mentor, the archdiocese, said, Martin, you need to stop being in the confessional. How could you possibly confess sins when you never even leave this box? That's how much Martin Luther trembled before pleasing this holy God. And, and he saw within him, though, this, this, this corruption and the, the things in the church that didn't quite make sense. He didn't, couldn't connect the two. He, he loved the church, yet there were so many things wrong with it that he saw. And the camel, the camel that broke the straw's back, the straw that broke the camel's back was that um, they had a building project. Building projects always split congregations, don't they? But the Catholic Church had a building project. Uh, anybody know what building it was that they were trying to build? St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah. So if you've ever seen the Vatican and you see St. Peter's Basilica, you can say that's why the Protestants exist, because of that building project. They were trying to raise funds for it, and they needed to raise funds. And a, a brilliant church growth marketer by the name of Johann Tetzel, he came up with a phrase that said, uh, to raise money, they would tell the people, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory will spring. See, they believed that their loved ones would, would, uh, would be in this place called purgatory, where even if they were believers in Christ, they still had remnant sin that needed to be dealt with, and so they were kind of being punished until they paid for that debt and then were released into heaven. And everyone was concerned. They didn't want their loved ones in purgatory. And so the church came up with this marketing plan to raise money for their building project. When Martin Luther heard that, his heart broke. He says, are you kidding me? That is not what the gospel's about. Now, there were other issues that took place, but that was it for Martin Luther in, in an early fall, cold morning in 1517, he walked up to the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany. He had spent hours working on a document called the 95 Theses. I want to be very careful to say that. 95 Theses. And he got a hammer and nailed it to the door of the church and said, there you go. And from that, the Protestant Reformation exploded onto the scene. 
Because what had Martin Luther had captured again and, and put in the minds of the people, that we are not saved because we earned that somehow. We're not saved because we donated money to build St. Peter's. We're not saved for any of those things. But if you read the Bible, we are saved because of the finished work of Christ. We're justified, not by our works, but by faith alone. And I, it, it caught a fire amongst people. Because everyone labored under this huge sense of guilt. All you former Catholics are saying, yeah, I know exactly what that means. But that's what they did. They labored under guilt. How can you please God? And you never could. And Martin Luther discovered that's not how this works. We're justified by faith alone. And the Protestant Reformation. Luther did not want to start a Reformation in, in the sense of what took place. He loved the church as we should too, but he just knew there were some errors and he wanted them changed. But as things happen, they're out of his hands and God had sparked a movement. Let me say this, you cannot understand the world you live in without understanding, and certainly Western civilization. You cannot understand Western civilization without understanding the Protestant Reformation. And, and that I'm not, I don't think, you guys know sometimes I'll, I'll over-exaggerate, I'm not over-exaggerating that one. You can't understand our world without understanding the Protestant Reformation. You certainly can't understand modern Europe at all unless you understand the Protestant Reformation. You can't understand the Protestant Reformation unless you understand the birth, development, and growth of Christianity. You can't understand Christianity unless you understand the Jews. All the point I'm getting at is the world we live in now didn't just kind of pop into existence, the values, the way we think about things. It didn't just happen. We can't blame the mess we're in on the baby boomers, right? They didn't do it all in the 60s. The world we live in now is a result of events and situations, and they find a lot of their genesis in the Protestant Reformation. Spun off the Enlightenment, spun off postmodernism, spun off the world we live in today. And it was all because of a monk who recognized, I don't think God is, is demanding us to earn our salvation. That just does not sound right to the scriptures I read. And he discovered justification by faith, and the world was changed forever. Now maybe, though, the pendulum swung from this huge sense of guilt. Oh, everyone knew they were guilty. And if you go to cultures, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, where there isn't a strong Protestant uh, 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 witness, they still labor on this huge guilt, right? How do I please God? How do I be right with God? Now, the pendulum in Western civilization has swung all the way over to the other side, where guilt is not even something that we tend to think about typically in our culture. It's just not part of our vocabulary, at least not on a normal sense. But, actually we see it as a bad thing, so we kind of don't even want to think about it. But do you know how I know that we all know, a lot of no's there, that we are in fact guilty, that there's guilt in us? The reason I know that is because everyone does the exact same thing I do whenever I look in my rearview mirror and I see a police officer behind me. How fast am I going? Drop the cell phone, 10 and 2. Am I in my lane? Guilty, right? Uh, we know there's a sense of guilt whenever your boss or your supervisor or your professor or teacher or maybe even your pastor says, can I speak to you? And you wonder, what did I do? That's your first reaction. You know something's going on. Or that, that anxious feeling when someone says to you, hey, guess what? I saw you the other day. And the first response you have is, oh, what? Right? 
there are enough examples of experiences in our life that tell us that we know that we are in fact guilty of at least something somewhere at some time. Guilt makes us realize that there has been some kind of a, a violation or an offense, and that debt has to be paid. And at the end of the day, there's only two options, right? On the one hand, we can either deal with our guilt uh, on our own, uh, by our, through our own means, and we can avoid it or face it with our own resources, or we can throw ourselves on the mercy of the one who's been violated and, and hope for some kind of absolution. These are the, those are the two options. Those are the two options of humanity. That tells a story of humanity. That tells my story. I think that tells your story. That tells our story. We either hide, avoid, ignore, or deny it, or we try to fix it, atone for it, make up for it, or justify it. Or we throw ourselves at the mercy of the one who has been violated. Now, millennia before Jesus Christ came to earth and died for man's sin and guilt, God had foreshadowed Christ's perfect sacrifice sacrifice through the offering of slain animals. If you're familiar with your Bible in the Old Testament, you see that a lot. You might say, why? Why why is that? It takes up such a big chunk of the Old Testament. Well, for you note-takers, write down Hebrews 9.22. The author of the Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Now, particularly if you're not a Christian, you might hear that and go, man, that just, that seems so barbaric. What is that? And that's just so pre-modern barbar- barbarism there. You've got to kill an animal to be forgiven of sin. That's just, what's the deal with that? And even if you are a Christian, you might be wondering why. The reason is, blood has always been a metaphor for life, right? So you might hear someone say something like, uh, you know, the, the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Browns? What am I thinking of? Cleveland, help me out. What, Indians? Anyway, I'm thinking about the Rust Belt, that part of the country, and coal is a big part of the economy. A friend of mine lives out that way. And he would say, coal was the lifeblood of our, of our towns and cities, right? So, so we use the phrase lifeblood, blood, as a metaphor for life, for vitality and vibrancy. Sin is so serious, the guilt is so profound, that the only thing that will atone for it is life itself. It is that serious a crime. Now, to be clear, I don't mean if we feel guilty, right? And this is a, a distinction our world doesn't quite understand. We go, I, I'm not guilty, I don't feel guilty, right? That's the subjective experience of, of guilt, what the Bible's referring to and what, our, what guys like Martin Luther and that culture knew so well, it wasn't a matter of whether or not you felt guilty, the subjective element, but the fact of the matter was you are guilty, the objective fact. So, for example, I shouldn't say this as the pastor, but it's the truth. I break the law all the time, and I don't feel guilty about it. Every time I get on the freeway, I break the speed limit law all the time, and I know many of you you do too. We can repent together, but I don't feel guilty about it, but I am guilty of it. Whether or not I feel guilty about going over 65 or 85 or whatever the case might be, I am guilty, aren't I? And so are you. 
So whenever the police officer, and by the way, that's why I don't have a Jesus fish on my car, so if you have that struggle, maybe you should take yours off too. The point is, I know some of you use it for accountability, that's good, but for me, it's just best not to go there. So when I get pulled over by that policeman, whether or not I technically was over the speed limit, I know at some point I'm guilty of breaking the law. And it's just a technicality if, if it happened to be not that time that when he caught me. You see the difference I'm getting at, though? I, I can be guilty and not feel it at all. And that's what I'm trying to distinguish here. So we can feel it or not, but we still are guilty. So when God set up the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, beginning way back with Adam and his sons, Cain and Abel, it was to be a constant reminder of the price of sin, the price of our guilt. But God never intended that the, the ritual or that, that we should believe that the blood of any animal could wipe away our guilt. It was merely intended to be a symbolic act to remind us of the heavy payment of our sin. So that when that animal was slain and you heard the bleeding of the sheep screaming and then the blood gushing forth, the person would do exactly what that young lady did there, go, that's the consequence of my rebellion. But it was never itself the act that would forgive, it was a symbolic act that would remind the people of the price of rebellion against a holy God. It was never intended to cleanse them, it was always to be accompanied by a humble and contrite heart, recognizing that unless God's mercy was given to me for my rebellion, that really would happen to me. That's what I deserve. And so the ritual should never be forgotten for the symbol of repentance and contriteness and a desire for mercy. But so often it does. Right? So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Isaiah the prophet would write this in Isaiah 29, 13. He says, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth. There we go. Thank you, Josh. And honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is only based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And the first example of these two options, one being going to trust in the mercy of God because I, I deserve punishment, the other being I'm going to try and figure this out and somehow atone for my own mistakes, we see that in Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, the very beginning of the Bible. Not only did Cain disobey the word of the Lord in bringing the wrong kind of offering, but without even the right heart, but Abel brought what was prescribed by the Lord and in faith brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord. And since the time of Cain and Abel, humanity has taken one of these two approaches to God, either God's prescribed way through faith trusting in his character, or man's preferred way through various works and acts from his own resources. One is about what God does for man, the other is about what man does for God. Yeah, we are actually in Galatians 2, by the way. <laughs> this is just a long introduction to this doctrine. Final point, since God always works through human means as he engages in our world, the message of this message of amazing grace itself came through a human culture, Jewish culture in this case. 
And even though it transcends that culture and all cultures, the danger then and now is that the gospel message can get confused with its surrounding culture. I'll never forget, a little over six years ago, I was teaching at a a pastor's conference in Nairobi, Kenya. And it was just a beautiful experience to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ in Africa. We had saints from the Maasai tribe, Sombero tribe, the Kikuyu tribe, and all of them came. And, and you know, in Africa, it's hot, and this was uh, in the summer, so a lot of them were in their linens or kind of light clothing and very tribal. But their pastors and bishops, that's what they call their church leaders, their bishops showed up, and they were all wearing business suits. I remember talking to, to Bishop Mumbogo, I said, hey, What's with the business suits? And they said, that's what we see. Isn't that how we present ourselves? And I thought, here's a perfect example of how the gospel and the message of the gospel gets confused with the prevailing culture. Now, I said, hey, if you want to dress and, and, and honor the Lord, then yeah, that's fine. That's great. If you choose not to wear your tribal vestments and you choose to wear a, uh, an Armani or something, okay, as long as that's your choice. But if you think somehow wearing a suit makes you more holy because that's what you're seeing in the West, that's not the gospel. But you see how so often the gospel message gets confused with the surrounding culture. And just as Peter and Paul and the early Christians had to wrestle with understanding the message of the gospel through their own cultural lens, we still have that task today. And in this last section of Paul's autobiography, we're getting to Galatians, we are seeing the importance of this task as even Peter himself deviates from the truth, and Paul has to declare it once again, and partly by rebuking Peter. So we're going to look at this passage, these 11 verses or so, in two sections, 11, uh, verses 11 through 14, and then 15 to 21. First, Peter's deviation from the truth. And verses 11 and 14 uh, act as kind of the bookends of this first section, with verse 11 recording the, the, the kind of charge against Peter, and verse 14 actually explaining what the charge is, with verses 12 and 13 uh, unpacking what Paul means in verse 11 by Peter standing condemned, okay? So that, that's what's going on. The basic situation we have here is that Peter... Uh, is enjoying open fellowship with the Gentile believers in Antioch. By the way, Antioch was like the first Gentile Christian church. As a matter of fact, that's where Christians were called Christians first, was in Antioch. Before that, we were followers of the way or disciples, those kinds of things. And they called them Christians uh, because it meant little Christ. It was actually a prerogatory term. It was a term of insult. But the Christians, just like they do with so many other things, embraced it, owned it, and redeemed it. And Peter was there enjoying this great fellowship with these Gentile Christians. The church being one as it's supposed to be. But then the passage tells us men from James, verse 12, came down and this began to change everything. Peter began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentiles, and this led other Jewish Christians, Barnabas included, to do the same. Now, when we read this passage, as Randy read it to us, we might be tempted to say, and, and you might think of this way, oh, Peter, back to his old you know, vacillating self, back and forth, but what a great example that if God will use Peter, he'll use anyone. I don't think that's exactly what's going on. Peter was the vacillating type. Peter was impetuous. 
Peter was the wavering type, but all that was before he had been transformed by Christ. He's a different man now. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 records this transformation, how other people noticed it. And when they were standing before the religious leaders of Israel, they said, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And I love this last line. And they recognize that they had been with Jesus. What an amazing testimony. When Peter and John, before these religious, powerful leaders, they said, these guys are uneducated, common guys, they're just fishermen. They were astonished, and they made the connection, oh, we know, these guys were the ones that were with Jesus. A radical encounter with Jesus changed, resulted in a radical change of lifestyle. And while it might be great to teach that God would use anyone if he would use Peter, and we know that that's true, that's not exactly what's happening in this text. Men from James, means the the Jerusalem church, had come down with news of the rising Jewish nationalism that we talked about about four weeks ago. That there was this rising surge of, of Jewish nationalism, and there was animosity that was growing toward the church due to the fact that they now were embracing Gentiles in their group. Remember that. This makes perfect sense in light of Acts chapter 12, write that down, because remember, these New Testament letters have a history, and Acts records much of that, in Acts chapter 12, and Herod's persecution against the apostles. It's interesting to note that that persecution, verse 3, pleased the Jews. But if you read a few chapters earlier than that, the church had favor amongst the Jews. The church, the, the Jews loved what was happening. It was neat to see this, this revival of enthusiasm for the Torah and God and Yahweh. Yes, and and Jesus was a little bit odd. They weren't quite sure what to do with that, but all of a sudden things changed. Why? Now when Herod officially persecuted them, the rest of the Jewish population encouraged that. Why? Acts chapter 10 and 11. When the message of the gospel transcended Jewish boundaries and then started bringing in these Gentile sinners, that had gone too far. And so these men who came from James came to this first Jewish congregation in Antioch to report that. So Peter backs away from these Gentiles to to not cause further offense because it's getting turbulent here. There's There's almost a civil war within Judaism because of the church. In other words, Peter opts for cultural accommodation over against gospel integrity. In the gospel, all people are clean. Without the gospel, all people are dirty. Peter knew that, but in the gospel, all people are clean. They didn't have to become Jewish to be made right with God. And Paul, I love it, verse 14, Paul sees what Peter's doing, and he knows it's not just being unwelcoming or rude. Peter's problem's far deeper. Verse 14 says, he was not in step with the gospel. Paul understood Peter's action as hypocrisy, verse 13, called it as so, because of fear, verse 12, because of fear, Peter chose to accommodate cultural preference over and above the implications of the gospel message. And moreover, others followed him in his actions. Just a side note here, my friends, when we compromise, others are going to compromise. And likewise, when you stand bold, others are going to stand bold. Regardless of how much influence you have or how little, that principle is going to hold true. 
So dads, moms, brothers, sisters, employers, whoever you might be, wherever you have influence, when you compromise gospel integrity, guess what's going to happen? Other people are going to compromise gospel integrity. But when you stand bold for the gospel, it has the same reverse effect. People are going to stand bold for the gospel. And we see this happening in Peter and Paul, and the gospel is always embedded in a culture, and at times... There are things that we can affirm about that culture, and there are things that we need to confront in that culture. This is where we as Christians have to be really wise, right? Some of us, some of us love the culture too much. Some of us love the culture too little. Man makes culture, right? And so man makes all kinds of culture. We make low culture, we make high culture, we make pop culture, we make corporate culture, Western culture, Japanese culture. We make all kinds of culture. Southern culture, you get the point. And because the image of God in man remains even after the fall, there are both good and bad elements in all of these cultures. And as ambassadors, as we learned this weekend, 2 Corinthians 5.20, We need to represent the king in all these cultures, and that's not a very easy thing to do, right? So this weekend we learned an ambassador is we have to be smart, we have to be nice, and we have to be tactical, right? What's the point of being smart if you're kind of a jerk about it, right? And you don't know what you're doing. What's the point of being nice if you have nothing to tell people and you still don't know what you're doing? What's the point of knowing what you're doing, but you're a jerk and you don't know anything? Right? We need to have them all there as Greg laid out. We need to be smart, we need to be nice, and we need to be tactical, and that's not easy to do. In Peter's case here in Galatians 2, accommodating the culture meant compromising the gospel because by backing away from eating with the Gentiles, he was communicating that even though they were in Christ, that wasn't good enough, that they, they needed to be like the Jews, His intentions might have been good, they might have been right, but the message he was saying was chipping away at the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So the takeaway from our example of Peter is that we have to be careful to think through the implications of the gospel for our actions to our culture, particularly when we're dealing with culture. Now here's the zinger, here's the zinger. Keep in mind that the culture that was, Peter was reacting to was not the prevailing Roman, what we would call the secular culture. It was the religious culture that Peter was accommodating and caused the compromise of the gospel. You see, when we think about culture, we're immediately thinking about the world out there, but we have a culture in here as well. And we need to always be careful to separate the gospel message from even the Christian culture which is what Martin Luther did so beautifully. He understood the gospel message from the current culture of the Catholic Church. The gospel transcends all these things, and we need to do the hard work of thinking through that. In order to do that, we need to know the gospel, and we need to know the cultures around us. And Paul called Peter out on it. So that was Peter's deviation from the truth. And then the second half is Paul's declaration of the truth in verse 15 to 21. Now, I don't, I don't want to just speed through this last section, but these seven, verses, these seven verses are really Paul's entire argument for the next two chapters in the book of Galatians. So what I want to do is I just want to kind of run through it, almost like a running commentary, just to give you categories of thought 
so that as we go into chapters 3 and 4, you have, you get, it makes better sense to you. Not only the fact that when you read these verses, it's, it's really dense, it's thick, and it's confusing. And that's because, keep in mind, Paul is, in Galatians, responding to a lot of charges and allegations against him and his gospel. And so as he's writing, we don't have the specific allegations. So when we're reading his response, we're kind of like, what? what's that supposed to mean? I don't know if you felt that. But when you read that, you go, what is he talking about here? So what I want to do is just run through and explain, and hopefully so that you can see these seven verses and go, oh, I get it, so that when we jump into chapters three and four, you're with me. In order to do that once more, I I do want to read these verses one more time. So Paul says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Pretty easy to get what he's saying there, but verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Okay, it gets a little bit challenging here. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Why? For though the law, through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Finally, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, pretty thick passage here, but very important to understand. So in verses 15 to 16, Peter's basically saying, look, because we are, or excuse me, Paul is saying, look, Peter, you know this, because we are Jews, we are the people of God, descendants of Abraham, the blessed receivers of of God's revelation through the law of Moses. We're the lucky ones, not like the rest of the world, the Gentile sinners. It's a common way they refer to the rest of the world. They don't have that stuff. We do. We're the blessed ones. But because, Peter, you and I are a part of this unique and blessed people, the Jews, we should know that the law itself teaches no man is made righteous through the law, but rather through faith in Jesus. Now, I'm going to unpack why he says that in a little bit, but this is his argument. This is what he's saying. Verse 16, hey, we're only made righteous through Jesus, not through the law. You know that, Peter, because you're a Jew. You've got the law yourself. These Gentiles never had it. This is what he means, by the way, in Philippians 3.9. He's saying the exact kind of thing. It's going to be on the screens behind me. And I'll be found in him, be found in who? Be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. Can't happen. But that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. That depends on faith. So he's saying the same kind of thing. Then we get to verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are to be found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? What is Paul getting at here? What Paul is saying is that, Peter, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, as opposed to seeking our justification in the law, we're no longer going to depend on the law like our people do, but we're going to be found righteous just in Christ, 
We're no longer holding to our unique privilege of being Jewish. And in that sense, we're going to be like all the other Gentile sinners in the world who get justified by Christ. Is Christ uh, an agent of sin? Because now the Jews are now considered sinners like everyone else because they don't have the, the law doesn't matter anymore. See, see, what he's saying is, the argument goes like this. Paul, our people, we know that we can't get justified through the law. The problem is our people think that the rituals and all those things is what actually makes us uh, clean before God. But we know when you read it, it says, no, that's not going to work. You can only be justified by Christ. So now uh, all of us Jews and Gentiles, are, or us Jewish Christians, are abandoning the law and seeking our justification in Christ. We're going to be like every other Gentile. We're on the same ground. And so the Jews are going to think, so now all the Jews are sinners because you don't have the privilege of the law anymore. So is Christ actually making more sinners now? Of course not. That's not what's going on. Do you, do you, are you guys with me there? Do I need to, are you getting that? So, so they're not clinging to the law. He says, let go of the law. But, but if we let go of the law, we're like the Gentiles. So does that mean if I go after Christ that I'm going to be like a sinner? Peter's, Peter, Paul's saying, yeah, kind of, you were always a sinner anyway, but now you actually know it. You can't claim your privilege anymore, but Christ isn't making more sinners. No, that's not what's happening. Verse 18, for if I rebuild, if I go back to the law as a reference point for my life, my justification before God, which is what Peter's doing, if I go back to rebuild what I tore down, in that, when I came to Christ, I rejected the law for my justification. I no longer look to the law as the thing that makes me right. If I go back to that, then I'm a transgressor. In other words, if I go back to the law after I got away from it, I am a transgressor. Why? Verse 19. Why? Because through the law, I died to the law as a means of salvation. When I understood the law, I said, oh, I get it. The law was not intended to save me. The law was intended to show me my sin and that I'd be justified some other way. So through the law I read it, I understand I have to die to the law and be alive to Christ because this was the law's purpose in the first place. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, Paul's getting at this. Verse 19, why then the law? What good is the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sins. We had all this sin, so the law came down to show us our sinfulness and our need for something else. Verse 24, is that something else? It's on the other page. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So he says, Peter, if we go back to depending on the law and all these kinds of actions, then we're going to be transgressors. Why would I try and rebuild what I tore down when I left the law to be made right in Christ when the law tells me the whole point of the law was to point me to someone who'd make me right in Christ? If I go back to the law, I'm violating the very point of the law and I'm a transgressor because the law was given to point me to Christ. Is, I hope you're understanding, that's Paul's argument here. So the million dollar question is, 
then how do I be dead to the law and be alive to Christ in this way? And that's where he culminates in verse 20 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead now. I'm dead with Him. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what Paul is getting at. And then he ends, I don't nullify the grace of God. As a matter of fact, I am magnifying the grace of God. If justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, let me put it this way. This is what kind of, we could say what Paul's saying here. Jesus will do either everything for you or nothing for you. But you cannot have it both. Jesus will do everything or nothing but you cannot combine merit and grace together. If justification, if being made right by God is, in, is by the law, my actions, my behavior, those things in any way, then Christ's death is pointless in every way, both historically and to you personally. Let me, as I close give you this illustration. Imagine for a moment, if you will, your house were burning down, coming down, but, but you and your entire family were safe outside on the sidewalk, and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you, and I run into the flames and I die. You would think that was a very tragic and pointless waste of life. But imagine if your house were in flames and you were on the sidewalk and your children were still in the house. And I said, let me show you how much I love you. And I run into the flames and I save all your kids, but I die in the process. You would say, man, how much this man loved me. You see, if we could save ourselves and cut ourselves that sidewalk, Christ's death is pointless. It means nothing. Christ's death means everything exactly because we could do nothing. And that was this doctrine of justification by faith. I'm looking at my notes and my conclusion was tied into my original introduction, which I hadn't thought about coming up with a new conclusion. So let me just say it like this. Martin Luther recognized that his culture within the church was not the gospel message and he planted a flag in standing for a gospel culture. And it cost him dearly, it cost thousands dearly, but it transformed and set free again the doctrine of justification by faith. That we don't burden under guilt because we're somehow trying to appease it through our own resources, but that we can throw ourselves and say, God, you are a merciful God. Peter forgot that. His culture informed him more than the gospel message. And Paul came back and reminded him, look, you have to always go back to the scriptures because the scriptures themselves testify to this reality that you're denying because your culture has taken a form of its own without rooting itself back in the scriptures. It's very easy for us to do that, especially as we live in a culture that by and large is friendly to Christianity. And then you go, no, it's not. And it is changing, isn't it? I think that's going to be good because we will have to ask the hard questions again. Wow, what I thought was my culture, it was a Christian culture, isn't. So what is a gospel-centered culture, and how do we stake a flag in that? And just as God worked powerfully as a result in the Protestant Reformation and throughout the history of His people, God will work powerfully again in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this amazing passage of Scripture of seemed to be just a personal conflict was really pointing to issues of culture and understanding the gospel. 
and celebrating the reality that, Lord, we are justified because of Christ. This was the plan all along. It was not about the blood of animals or any of that, but to build a people that would in faith trust, recognizing the penalty of our guilt and sin, but recognizing that you provided for that in Christ. Lord, may that truth transform the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.